When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julianne Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Vaccine variables stock steady as the logistical challenges become clearer. Transition trouble, Team Biden not ruling out legal action against the White House and antitrust accusations. The EU charges Amazon with breaking competition rules. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers across the globe. Great to have you with us on another day focused on science, stimulus and standoffs. Let's take them in turn. The blockbuster news on Pfizer's COVID vaccine helped trigger one of the biggest global rallies of the year yesterday. But as Scott Minard said to us too, tomorrow's vaccines don't put food on the table today or help struggling small businesses get back to work. And that is a very valid point. It fits perhaps with a more subdued picture for global markets. You can take a look, though. Europe, as you can see, is in the green. And look at the UK. I have to tell you, that's up 12% so far this month. Asia, meanwhile, was mixed, but regional carriers soared. Cathay Pacific, Japan Airlines, Korean Air, all posting double-digit gains. It matches what we saw in the United States here, too. A rotation out of the pandemic winners and into some of the pandemic losers. We saw some profit-taking yesterday in stocks like Zoom, Netflix, Amazon. And we also saw big bounces in beaten-up travel and leisure stocks. Let me just give you some perspective here, because this is key. Carnival Cruises gained a whopping 39% yesterday, But look at that chart. It still remains down more than 60% year to date. Zoom, meanwhile, Zoom, how we've all kept connected, that lost 17%, but oh boy, up 500% plus year to date. We remain in a pandemic and we're still going to shop at Amazon throughout this and we're still going to watch too much Netflix for better or worse. Big investors are telling me that they view this as the beginning of the end of the COVID crisis. That's hope, but progress won't be a straight line and we still need help from governments, financial help, help controlling the virus, key, and vaccine education, not to mention logistical help with this vaccine. Let's get to the drivers. U.S. state health officials are warning that they are overwhelmed and daunted by the handling requirements of Pfizer's new COVID vaccine, which includes storage at super cold temperatures. Elizabeth Cohen joins us now with the details on this. And Elizabeth, I'm sure there's a technical term for this, but I'll just use the term fragile. Distributing, housing this vaccine is complicated. It really is, Julia. And let's take a look at some of the reasons for this, because in the United States, it's the individual states that are going to have to administer this vaccination program. And the more fragile the vaccine is, the harder that is. And remember, to all of our listeners around the world, the United States is a huge place. It's really not like distributing vaccine really anywhere else in the world um, that quite is quite like this. So let's take a look at the specifics for this vaccine. So this vaccine from Pfizer, which has shown great efficacy and data that, that we were told 
told about yesterday. Um, it has to be kept at minus 75 degrees centigrade. That is 50 degrees colder than any other vaccine that is currently used in the United States. And that means the doctor's offices and pharmacists don't have the freezers that they need. They don't have freezers that go anywhere near that low. And so last month, Pfizer had a webinar with folks from all over the United States, um, all of their immunization programs to give them the specifics for how to make this work. It involves using custom-made um, storage uh, thermal shippers, they're being called, that Pfizer is making. They're about the size of a suitcase. They need to be replenished with dry ice on a regular basis. So the states have to find dry ice, which can be hard to find sometimes. They have to handle dry ice, which doctors and nurses are not used to doing. It is a big deal. So one of the people who was on this call from one of the states, she texted a friend, a colleague who was on the call and said, how are we going to do this? And the colleague just texted back an exploding head emoji. Julia? Uh-oh. I mean, the CDC, the Uh-oh, Center for right. Disease Control, is saying this is very mm-hmm. complex. How long do they have? I mean, if we're talking about using words such as daunting um, and head exploding emojis, Elizabeth, how long do they have? Do they have time to get this ready? You know- You know, not long. Getting a vaccine program ready is usually done over a matter of of months, if not longer. This is going to be the hardest vaccine distribution program in the U.S. because of the fragility of the vaccine. And they really may have just a matter of weeks. So it wasn't until October 15th that states were given the very specific instructions for what to do, according to folks that I've talked to. And so that was October 15th. The FDA may indeed grant a a permission to Pfizer to market this vaccine really in just a matter of weeks. So that just gives these states really just weeks to get this all together. Yeah, I just mentioned the beginning of the end of the COVID crisis, but very much at the beginning as far as vaccines are concerned, which is why attention always turns Mm -hmm. to therapeutics in the meantime to treat people that potentially are sick with with COVID-19. Talk to me about Eli Lilly because they've just got FDA approval for their antibody therapeutic. What do we know on this? Yeah, so this really is a a big day in the same way that the vaccine data yesterday was big. It's also big that this is the first company where we've seen get an EUA, an emergency use authorization um, for this particular product. And so what this means, this is a therapeutic. So this is something that you take after you've been diagnosed with COVID, after you've gotten sick, what they're hoping is that it will keep people out of the hospital. What they found when they studied it was that it did reduce the symptoms for some people and it did reduce the hospitalization rate. But, and I know I sound like I'm repeating myself, there are logistical challenges. Will there be enough of this medicine? And will it be easy to get people in and out to give them this medicine? Because it has to be delivered intravenously. It's not like you can just pop a pill at home. So those two things make this difficult. And we have to remember, Julia, these products, the vaccine, the monoclonal antibody, these are not just regular old drugs that you can make easily and dispense easily. These are, for want of a better term, sort of living, breathing products, right? They are made from actual organic, real material. And so that means that they are harder to make. They are harder sometimes to use. Julia? Yeah, it's phenomenal science, but it comes with its own challenges. And uh, you can repeat yourself as much as you like, Elizabeth. You are my reality check (laughs) queen, quite frankly. So um, thank thank you you. (laughs) for the analysis there, Elizabeth Cohen.
All right, Dow futures are higher this morning after the index rose nearly 3% yesterday on Monday's session following Pfizer's vaccine update. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, I'm sure you were just listening to that. I think the reality of the timing here certainly setting in, even as investors do tend to jump ahead. It was a rotation from some of the winners to some of the losers. But seeing more of this, we shall see. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that we're at the beginning of the end of COVID, but we're at the beginning of something new, a new phase here. And so you've investors sort of shunning NASDAQ stocks, those those high-flying stocks that had done so well uh, in the advance this year. The NASDAQ's up 30% this year and focusing on things that might come back to life next year when you get a vaccine and when you get a situation that is really a post-COVID uh, crisis world and learning to live with COVID and beat COVID through vaccines and, and therapeutics. So, you know, some of those gains we saw, for example, in AMC theaters and in Disney and in, in the Carnival Cruise sh- uh, lines of the world showed you that uh, for the first time in a long time, investors were starting to say, wait a minute, there could be a day when we have people in movie theaters, people gathering, people traveling, people going to see grandma and trying to prepare for, for what that, that investment landscape is going to look like. Yeah, there's a good time coming. It could just be a good time coming, quite frankly. Um, Christine, in the interim, and I mentioned this at the top of the show, and I know you'll feel strongly about this too, vaccines of tomorrow don't bring jobs back today. We are still in the midst of a pandemic. There are still many challenges ongoing. It's not a get out of jail free card for for Congress, for governments around the world, not providing the support to people that simply can't get back into those jobs because of the restrictions. And, and, you know, Moody's Analytics, uh, Mark Zandi and others have said, you know, Congress did a fantastic job of building this bridge over the chasm that is COVID and stopped building it. And, and there's a little ways to go yet. So even as we can see the end and we see this this new beginning in this new phase of what the economy is going to look like next year, we need a little bit of help to get to that point because you have 10 million jobs, still net job loss of 10 million since the beginning of COVID. We still have 20 some million people who are receiving some sort of, of, of a jobless check. We have a potential rent and real estate problem coming around the pike here because so many people who've, uh, you know, who've um, been in forbearance are going to have to start paying back uh, their rent and mortgages from from earlier this year. So there's a moment coming here where people still need help. And you and I say it all the time. Wall Street is not Main Street. Wall Street right now, there are people who are making money. Right. And there are people at home who are just trying to figure out how to make it by to get into that new phase next year. Yeah, and continuity in handling all these challenges uh, seems to be a problem as well, and we'll get to that. Christine Rodens, thank you so much for that. (laughs) On that note, Joe Biden's team says they're preparing for a contentious transition period, including the potential for legal action if the White House continues to refuse to cooperate. Joe Johns joins us live from Washington now. Joe, we were talking about this yesterday. Fine. The White House wants to have certain state C recounts. There's potential legal challenges over the validity of this vote count. The problem is we're in the midst of a pandemic and economic crisis. We need the potential president elect here, Joe Biden, to be briefed. And he can't get briefed either yet. That's absolutely right. And if you look carefully at this, where it may be headed is there are concerns from critics already being expressed that the president, with his intransigence, is essentially setting it up so that the national security apparatus of the United States is hamstrung in the early days of a Biden administration that national security apparatus might also well include uh, the people who uh, have to deal with coronavirus in the next 
administration. Uh, the problem is pretty simple. It was even laid out in the 9-11 report uh, from years ago after the United States was attacked in New York, Pennsylvania, here in the Washington, D.C. area. The 9-11 Commission said that the George W. Bush administration was hamstrung by how long it took for ascertainment from the GSA, in other words, acknowledgement of the winner of the election. And what that did essentially was uh, create a situation where the deputy intelligence officers and others weren't named, weren't identified, weren't cleared, and so on. So there are real problems associated with the president's refusal to concede, refusal to... um, open up the floodgates and allow the Biden administration to start its transition. And so there are two possibilities and perhaps several more, including a lawsuit to compel the uh, government here to ascertain Biden the winner. Uh, Also, the possibility of a shadow transition, if you will, informally individuals working with Biden contacting individuals working in some of these government agencies to try to get a leg up on uh, what they're going to be facing when they walk in the door on January 20th, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there's so many crises to deal with here. It's the last thing we need. Every moment, every second, every minute counts. Um, Strange time, it seems, Joe, very quickly to be firing people in your cabinet. But that's what happened Mm -hmm. yesterday with the Defence Secretary Mark Esper. And there is now a suggestion, according to, um, I believe, uh, our colleague Jake Tapper, that perhaps the director of the CIA could be at risk here. Also, the director of the FBI, perhaps even the attorney general, Bill Barr himself. What's going on? Yeah, doesn't it, though? It sounds very much like the beginning of an old fashioned purge in government, something you wouldn't expect at the very end of a president's administration. But you're right. Mark Esper uh, out the door. There's talk about Gina Haspel over at the CIA. And that really, again, points up this issue of hamstringing the national security apparatus here in the United States. The president apparently doing it to his own administration. Now, uh, to be fair, Esper was believed to be on his way out the door anyway because he had a habit, if you will, of telling the president of the United States no on critical issues, and the president didn't like that. Uh, The same with Gina Haspel. The question, of course, is what kind of shape this United States national security apparatus is going to be in by the time Donald Trump goes out the door. Yeah, continuity is in the best interests of Americans, however they voted. That's the heartbreaking thing. Joe Johns in Washington, thank you for your assessment and analysis there. All right, the European Union formally charging Amazon with antitrust violations. It says the retailer used data gathered from sellers on its platform to compete with those sellers. Anna Stewart joins me now. Pretty complicated here, but if you can distill it down for us, what are they suggesting that Amazon has done here, effectively use those and the information of those sellers to foster and improve their own capabilities on Amazon selling their own products. <laughs> it does sound complicated. Julia, there are so many probes, antitrust probes from the EU against tech companies. It's hard to keep track of them all. This one's been in the works for nearly two years. And you're right, it's all about that dual role Amazon has both as a marketplace platform for other third party retailers to sell on, but also as its role as a retailer 
on that same platform. Now today, this preliminary view from the EU is that Amazon is using uh, data that it gets privileged uh, from these third-party retailers to know what is selling well, at what price point in which markets, and it can therefore use that data to get an unfair advantage, a big problem in markets where it is dominant like Germany and France. Now, Amazon have responded. They disagree uh, with this view from the EU. They also point out that they represent, they say, less than 1% of the global retail market, and they say no companies help small businesses more than them. This is just the preliminary view. As you know, these things rumble on and on, so we're nowhere near uh, potential fines yet. Yeah, far greater chunk of the online market, but to be fair to them, these small businesses wouldn't have access to the broad scope of international businesses, regional businesses, perhaps that they sell to and customers if they didn't have access to the platform. So it's an interesting one. Anna, what surprises me or perhaps shouldn't surprise us is how relatively more aggressive the EU is in tackling these big tech companies versus the United States that seems to chat a lot about it and actually do very little. I mean, take a look at some of the fines that the EU has slapped against tech firms just in the last few uh, years. Google, a total of $9 billion. Apple has appealed that one. You can see it there, though. Some massive totals there. And I think Amazon is likely to get more fines uh, in the pipeline, not least as today. In addition to this preliminary view on this antitrust probe, Julia, they've launched a new one, this time against Amazon's best box um, service. That is something that many users use. You don't always know what it's called. It's that white box on the right-hand side. It helps you buy things with one click. And Amazon chooses which retailers get to use it. And the EU is suggesting that perhaps Amazon is pushing them to use its own logistics and other services. So these sorts of probes just keep rumbling on, particularly under this EU competition commissioner who feels very hot uh, when it comes to antitrust probes against big tech firms from the United States. Julia? Yes, not shy about tackling uh, these big guys. Anna Stewart, <laughs> thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Angry protests in Armenia's capital city after the prime minister signed what he called an unspeakably painful agreement with Russia and Azerbaijan. The peace deal involves the disputed area of Nagorno-Karabakh. It comes after six weeks of intense fighting and just hours after Azerbaijan claimed it captured a strategic city in the region. Tributes are being paid to a veteran Palestinian negotiator who dedicated his life to the peaceful pursuit of Palestinian statehood. Saeb Arakat has died in Jerusalem Hospital from coronavirus complications at the age of 65. The EU has said his death is a great loss to the Middle East peace process. The Vatican has released an explosive report following a two-year investigation involving ex-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. It says the late Pope John Paul II was aware of allegations of sexual misconduct by McCarrick, but chose to promote him anyway. McCarrick was defrocked by the Vatican last year for sexual abuse. All right, we're going to take a break. Plenty more to come from First Move. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. It's the day after the big vaccine vroom on Wall Street. A little less investor exuberance today, though. The Dow is expected to power higher as the rotation from big tech names into economically sensitive stocks continues. Right now, as you can see, higher pre-market by around six-tenths of one percent. Blue chips, JP Morgan, Chevron and Boeing are set to advance once again this session. These companies could be winners when the vaccines begin distribution and economies improve. The Dow came within 200 points of hitting that elusive 30,000 milestone Monday before pulling back from those record highs. Alicia Levine, Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management and joins us now. Alicia, fantastic to have you on the show. I mentioned at the beginning of this hour that some investors were saying, look, we're seeing the beginning of the end of the COVID crisis. Do you agree or are we being a little bit presumptuous here? Hi, Julie. It's great to see you today. Look, I I think that the um, preliminary efficacy data that we saw yesterday that so outperformed what the trial was powered for, it was powered for a 50% efficacy. If the 90% efficacy holds and if the side effect profile is reasonable, and we don't know that yet, then the answer is yes, this was a game changer. Because all of a sudden, if you're sitting on the fence about whether or not to take a vaccine, if it's 90% effective, you're more likely to take it. And so therefore, we've now dialed forward when we think the population would be willing to take it and you get immunity sooner. It's a game changer for sure. Obviously, there's manufacturing issues. but yeah, the company that reported yesterday, Pfizer, won't have 1.3 billion doses until next year. But there is some plan to start rolling out this year to healthcare workers. So I think it is a game changer. Yeah, I mean, the read through here being that uh, the more efficacious it is, the less people need to take it in order to reach some level of herd immunity where we can in some way get our lives back to normal. I guess the other thing to point out here, and it sort of ties to the reaction that we saw yesterday, this is just one of many. We don't know that they're all going to be as efficacious if they'll even work, quite frankly, but we could be in for a run here over the next couple of months of a number of these success stories in vaccine development could. I'll That's repeat. right. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, the Pfizer trial was, an ex- was a new technology, a novel technology targeting the spike protein. Moderna has a similar target on the spike protein. So I think we can assume that the Moderna trial may also be successful, but we don't know if it's going to be 90% or 70% or 50%. We just don't know. We know the trials all started around the same time. They've enrolled a lot of people. If they require two doses, then you do get evaluated sometime after the second dose. So this does take time. But on the other hand, the news is more positive than negative. And that's what we saw in the market. We saw that rotation into the cyclicals and the value stocks, kind of kind of an amazing historical rotation that we saw yesterday. And I expect the outperformance of cyclicals to continue, although yesterday was a huge move and some of those moves are going to have to be digested. You know, it's interesting. I, I made the point as well earlier that where we saw profit taking, they've seen bumper gains in many cases. Zoom, as an example, up 500 percent year to date. So that can lose quite a lot of ground and still be a bumper performance on the year. Some of those that were gaining have been seriously beaten up and they have plenty of upside, too. So does that also tie into what you're saying, that you think some of that rotation can continue, even if it isn't like a session like yesterday? 
Yes, I think the rotation can continue. You know, the truth is the rotation really started in the summer. The oh. outperformance of the cyclicals over tech, that doesn't mean tech didn't perform. It just means it was outperformed. And I think that's what you're going to see here. So some of the excess in the uh, tech and growth sector is going to have to come out of it, particularly, I think, the stay-at-home names that we all know and love, which were down almost 20% yesterday. But again, both groups can perform. The issue is where are you getting where are you getting outperformance in the short term as a tactical trade? You're going to get it from the cyclical sectors. That doesn't mean sell tech. That doesn't mean sell your growth. It just means you're going to get outperformance from another sector. Yeah, that's such a great point. Alicia, I had planned originally to talk to you today as well about the election. It felt like whatever the election result was going to be, we were primed for overall stock markets to rally because we're looking at the best bits of whatever outcome. How important in your mind is Georgia and the fact that one state, two Senate seats suddenly become a pivot point upon which potentially the balance of power in U.S. Congress will be determined? Yeah, so thank, thanks for that question. Look, I mean, right now, the Senate looks to stay Republican, which is ex very market friendly with a Democratic president. And we like split government. The market likes split government. The issue on the, uh, the Georgia races for, for those overseas is that they're going to run off January 5th. And that's two Senate seats. The market's presuming the Republicans win those seats. But if not, you could wind up with a 50-50 Senate and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris then casts any tie vote. And what that means is that there's still a path for some of the, um, the more progressive agenda of the Biden agenda, including tax increases and other changes to health care, may be able to squeak through even with a 50-50 Senate because of the, the tie vote being cast by the Vice President-elect. So the market's not pricing this in. The market's pricing in a Republican Senate. This is a non-zero probability event. And I think at some point we're going to get some angst about it. Um, so it's just it's really something to keep an eye on because you're going to see Republicans and Democrats descend on Georgia in the next six <laughs> weeks. Descend. Yes. Yeah. And raising lots of money. We've already talked about it on the show uh, this week. Alicia, great to have you with us. We will reconvene very soon. Alicia Levine, Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Always great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are up and running this Tuesday. The Nasdaq falling for a second straight session as the rotation that we've been discussing from some of the big tech names into economically sensitive value stocks continues. We're also watching the Russell 2000 closely today in the session. The small cap index rose more than three and a half percent yesterday, beating the performance of all the U.S. major indices. The Russell's up, in fact, just two percent year to date. Compare and contrast that with the 30 percent rise that we've seen in the tech heavy Nasdaq. These smaller companies, small cap names have lots of room to run if vaccines can help economies recover. Meanwhile, stocks in the news today include Apple. It's falling for a second straight session ahead of another product reveal later today. Apple is expected to unveil new Mac computers that will for the first time include Apple-made chips instead of Intel processors. All right, bringing this together, America's largest manufacturers association has called news of a vaccine candidate an extraordinary milestone for the industry. It's an industry that directly employs near 12 million Americans. 
But the body also warns it will be many months before work returns to normal, saying what Americans need right now is policies, not politics. Joining us now is Jay Timmons, president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. Jay, fantastic to have you on the show once again. We have lots to discuss, but just to get your sense of, of the excitement surrounding this vaccine, but also the fact that it doesn't help today with all the challenges that the industry and workers and employers are facing. Well, actually, I think it does because it mm. it provides a roadmap for us to get back to some sense of normalcy. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight, as you just indicated. We are we have to produce enough uh, doses of the vaccine to not only to not only get out to uh, all the folks in this country, but also around the world. So, what we can do before that is we can do exactly what the president-elect advised us to do yesterday, which is to be safe, to wear a mask. If everybody wears a mask and social distances and avoids large gatherings, we can get this thing under control and get our economy back and save jobs and, of course, save lives. Jay, I love your optimism about this and and this sentiment shift is vital too. It's light at the end of a a pretty dark tunnel, so it's been. Are you, and what's the message from the National Association of Manufacturers? Are you going to say to, to the employers that you represent, talk to your employees, educate them, push them to get this vaccine? Because there's clearly misinformation and there's deep skepticism too. How are you going to handle that? Absolutely. I mean, that is a that is a key component is is utilization and and making sure that enough people are actually uh, taking the vaccine. So I think the most important thing is that we have to remember is I'm actually more worried about the rush to get the vaccine than I am about people not wanting to to receive it. I actually think that's a myth. Most most Americans, certainly, and I think people around the world understand that we've cured terrible diseases or stopped terrible diseases like polio and smallpox and, and, and so many others because of the use of vaccines. We can save the world, literally save the world with this vaccine. The most important thing for us to remember is there's going to be a hierarchy of need here. We've got to get to the first responders, our healthcare workers, the folks that are in the hospitals and the nursing homes that are potentially exposed every single minute of every single day. Then we have to get to the folks who who have other conditions that may be, um, you know, that may help to spread or, or, or contract the virus and, and on and on until we're able to get enough doses out for the entire population. It makes sense to me. Jay, talk to me about the result of the presidential elections, because your statement is what caught my eye. And the first thing you said was, look, the way that Americans have voted here suggests that they're not happy with extreme policies on either side of politics here, whether you're from the Republican Party or from the, the Democratic Party. Explain what you meant by that specifically and what policies do you want to see a future Biden administration drop and focus on that's primarily? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and look, the National Association of Manufacturers and all manufacturers and those 12 million people that you mentioned that are part of our workforce are all about policy. They want policies that allow us to compete and succeed and that supercharge the economy and incentivize investment in American manufacturing and creation of jobs here in the United States and increased wages and benefits. And what they're always looking for is smart, stable, solutions-oriented governance. And so I think that President-elect Biden's press conference yesterday where he outline steps that we can all take 
to get this virus under control shows that type of solutions oriented focus. And I think that's what we really need to, you know, to to insist on from all of our government officials, our elected officials, specifically about policy, though. You know, we've had some really great policy victories over the course of the last few years. And before the pandemic, those were coming home and and allowing us to invest more, hire more and raise wages and benefits. And I'm talking, of course, about tax policy and 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 tax reform. I'm talking about regulatory certainty and the two for one regulatory um, executive order that was issued in this administration. So we need to focus on on making sure that we maintain those and then we need to focus on infrastructure investment. We need to focus on immigration reform. We need to continue to focus on workforce development. All of those things, and and of course, can't leave out trade agreements. We need mm. to reach the 95% of the world's uh, customers. They don't reside here in the United States. We want to make our stuff here and sell it there. So you're saying end trade wars, don't overtax, and don't reverse the deregulation. I think they're uh, so. So yeah, in a nutshell. But yeah. I think as far as it goes. <laughs> Look, we need a balanced system, right? You don't want to take advantage of American manufacturers. And there's been some progress made, especially when it comes to to some of the cheating we've seen coming from China. But having said that, we need to expand our trading relationships around the world. We need to make sure that we are the, the preeminent country for manufacturing and continue to incentivize manufacturing right here, because that means American jobs, not only in manufacturing, but it also increases and and uh, makes makes quality of life even better in this country as we expand jobs in other sectors as well. Yeah, and there's plenty of people without jobs that um, that need them right now. Jay Timmons, great to have you with us as sure. always, sir, uh, president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. Thank you. All right, as the world looks towards a future vaccine, it also faces the current reality of a surging COVID outbreak. We look at where the global pandemic stands today. Welcome back to First Move. The coronavirus pandemic is continuing to accelerate at a worrying pace. Europe remains the worst hit in the world. The region adds another one million cases every three days or so and accounts for roughly half of the global total. New cases have largely plateaued in India after slowing steadily for the last two months. The country still has the world's second highest caseload, trading only the United States. And in China, where the virus originated, there are a handful of new cases for the second day in a row. Prepare for mass testing, perhaps, there once again. Meanwhile, cases are surging at record levels here in the United States, as Omar Jimenez reports. The United States surpassing 10 million confirmed coronavirus cases since the start of the pandemic. One million of those cases reported in just the last 10 days. And then now, as you see, we're well over 100,000, and that is really something that is unfortunate. Having said that, it is not too late to turn that around. On Monday, the U.S. saw more than 111,000 new cases, and 44 states are seeing upticks in the number of cases. We're in essentially a national sort of state of exponential growth. I think that, you know, we are going to um, continue to go up in terms of the newly uh, diagnosed infections, as well as people who who need to be hospitalized um, and sadly people who will die. The surge is reaching every corner of the nation. In the Midwest, cases and number of patients hospitalized with the virus continues to rise. 
At least 16 states across the country are seeing record hospitalizations, including Ohio, which saw its worst week since the pandemic began. Ohio medical officials warning that hospitals are becoming overwhelmed due to the recent uptick. That surge also felt in North Dakota, where the governor announced that asymptomatic, COVID-positive healthcare workers are now allowed to work in COVID units of licensed healthcare facilities as hospitals face staffing shortages. We could be facing a situation in our state in the next two to three weeks where we would be severely constrained on hospital capacity. Some parts of the state are already, we're already seeing that. In New York City, the positivity rate has increased to well over 2% for the first time in months. Mayor Bill de Blasio issued this warning. Now, unfortunately, we're seeing a real growth in the positivity rate in this city, and that is dangerous. So we have one last chance to stop a second wave. And here in El Paso, nearly 900 new coronavirus cases were reported on Monday, and the city currently has a test positivity rate of over 20%. More than 1,000 patients are hospitalized with the virus, and just over 300 of those are in the ICU. The city now has six mobile morgues and is asking for four more. El Paso is currently under a two-week shutdown that is set to expire on Wednesday. The county judge, though, says he feels they'll need to extend that shutdown. The hospitals are still not manageable. We're having a, you know, a, you know, an inability to handle fatalities. It, it leaves me no choice but to lean towards an extension of the, of the order. Thanks to our Omar Jimenez for that report there. Now, more details have emerged about the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer and the German biotech firm they've partnered with. Ur Sahin, who is the chief executive at BioNTech, is married to the chief medical officer and fellow board member, Oslem Terechi. One tabloid described them as the couple who could save the world. Fred Plutkin joins us now. He's been monitoring a BioNTech press conference just a few moments ago. Fred, we can talk about the press conference, but actually the most exciting part of this story is just who this couple are. They are an extraordinary couple and they are truly, it seems, incredibly dedicated. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think an extraordinary couple and certainly one uh, that, that really is seen as amazing here in Germany, both on the sons of uh, Turkish immigrants or the, the, the children, I should say, of Turkish immigrants uh, to this country. Both of them, uh, of course, met while they were studying and then became this really powerhouse couple furthering, uh, for instance, vaccine development, but in general science. One of the things, of course, that they did is they founded this uh, company, BioNTech, uh, together, wanting to forward that mRNA technology, which is now, of course, at the centerpiece of this vaccine that they're creating, this BNT162 vaccine. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I've had two interviews with Ur Shaheen. And the thing is, he says he's trying to create this European powerhouse pharmacological company. But at the same time, you notice that for him and for his wife, it really still is all about science. And one of the interesting things that I found out from him is that the vaccine that we're seeing now, BNT162, which of course is a cooperation between BioNTech and Pfizer, they actually started that cooperation without actually even having a written agreement with Pfizer because they thought it was so important to forward that. So this uh, couple, Ur Shahin and his wife, Aslam Turechi, certainly right now a bright shining light uh, for the whole sense of, you know, folks who have immigrated here to Germany. Of course, we know that the Turkish community here in Germany, there's been a lot, some problems uh, in the past with integration. There's been some bad feelings here. It's been a difficult process, but this certainly is a shining light couple and one that right now is being hailed by all of Germany as we speak 
these two folks are on the cover of almost any publication here in this country, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A bright beacon, I think, in so many ways and for so many reasons. And mm. this is years, decades of work in uh, cancer immunotherapy yeah. tools and treatments that, that this couple has engaged in. Do you think there was any element of frustration here, Fred? Because we kept talking about Pfizer's vaccine, Pfizer's vaccine. And at the heart mm. of this is their technology and, as I say, decades of their work. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that there's uh, any frustration. At least there's no frustration that I've seen. I've interviewed uh, Ur Shaheen uh, twice yeah. so far. And I think that for him and, and probably certainly also for his wife as well, this is all about uh, forwarding science. On the one hand, of course, as I said, he does say that he does want to make this company to a very large company. It's not the first one he and his wife have founded or have been a part of, but it's certainly one that you can see is at the heart uh, of what he wants to do and what his wife wants to do with that mRNA uh, technology. And I think one thing that... Um, that uh, Mr. Shaheen said at the, the press call that I just got off of a couple of minutes ago, he said, look, in the end, the great thing for humanity is that we now know that a vaccine does help against COVID-19 and can prevent people from developing COVID-19. And he also believes and is actually seemingly cheering on also other vaccine developers that are trying to make vaccines as well or that are in the latter stages of developing these vaccines. So I don't think that there's really any hard feelings or any bad feelings. I think for Ur Shaheen and his wife, Aslam Turechi, it is all about forwarding the cause. At the same time, of course, they are very much going to reap the benefits as well. And if you look at some of the things that they were saying today, they really do have a long-term strategy, a long-term plan for this. They were talking about ramping up the production process. Of course, they and Pfizer are already saying up to 1.3 billion doses to be made available by next year, of course, if everything goes well, Julia. Yeah, you make a great point, Fred. I did read in uh, Weltabsongtag, the uh, German newspaper, that they are among the 100, uh, among the 100 richest Germans. Yeah. So the, yeah. it's a lucrative uh, occupation. <laughs> but wow, I believe they also spent some time on their Doing wedding Doing well day. by doing good. Yeah, absolutely. And spent time on their wedding day in a research lab. So, um, wow. All we can Mm. say is what an amazing couple and thank you to them. Fred Plagan, thank you so much for that report there. All right, coming up on First Move, Jack Ma's $37 billion ant group IPO dream crushed by China's Communist Party. What's behind that move? That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Alibaba gearing up for China's Singles Day, the massive annual shopping event on November 11th. It's less than a week since the much-anticipated IPO of Ant Group, controlled by Alibaba's founder Jack Ma, was halted by the Chinese government. Selena Wang joins us with the details. Selena, I was very excited to talk to you about shopping, robot cleaners, vacuums and revenge shopping, in fact, specifically, but we don't have time. Talk to me about Ant Group and we'll talk about shopping tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Revenge shopping indeed, Julie, and we will see some massive numbers tomorrow. Remember, last year it reached more than $38 billion in gross merchandise value in that 24-hour window. But shifting gears to Ant Group, it's been a difficult few weeks for Jack Ma, and this big blowout shopping day comes at a time when Alibaba is trying to evaluate the impact that this delayed IPO is going to have on its business because, of course, Alibaba is a major shareholder in Ant Group, and this IPO would have been a big boost for Alibaba as well. So take a listen here for more details on why it was delayed. Beijing just reminded Chinese billionaire Jack Ma who's really in charge. Chinese regulators halted the biggest IPO in history last week. Chinese fintech giant Ant Group was set to raise $37 billion. 
Days before its scheduled listing in Shanghai and Hong Kong, Ma and two executives were summoned to a rare meeting with regulators. The next day, the Shanghai Stock Exchange suspended the IPO, citing the meeting and regulatory changes. I think what we saw with this last-minute intervention was the umpire strikes back. You know, the regulator、uh, is nervous about the growth of the private sector players in the financial sector. Alibaba founder Jack Ma founded the payment service Alipay 16 years ago. It became a financial supermarket and an everyday necessity for almost every person and business in China. Alipay has more than one billion users. They rely on the app to make purchases, pay bills, get loans, buy insurance products, and invest in money markets. In 2011, Alipay spun off from Alibaba, and in 2014, it became part of Ant Group. The IPO would have valued Ant Group at more than $310 billion. That's more than major U.S. banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. For years, Beijing has been worried about Ant's massive influence on China's financial landscape, while avoiding some of the regulations that traditional banks have to follow. Those concerns dovetail with Xi Jinping's tightening of Communist Party control over private businesses. A reassertion of the role of the Communist Party and state-owned enterprises. Uh, doesn't sit very well with a, a cashed-up, very fast-growing private sector company entering into a strategic sector like finance. Regulators have proposed new rules. That means Ant needs to set aside more cash for its loans and force it to act more like a traditional bank that could slow down Ant Group's rapid growth while lowering its massive valuation. Authorities gave few details on why the IPO was pulled, but experts also point to controversial statements Ma made. He publicly criticized China's regulators for stifling innovation and China's state-owned banks for their pawn shop mentality. To be too explicit about the problems in, in Chinese government and regulation isn't advisable when the government ultimately is the, the gatekeeper. It's not clear if or when Ant Group's IPO will be able to resume. It's a stark reminder that no company is immune to the reach of the Communist Party. Fascinating. And Julia, I want to mention this statistic. Those new. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, absolutely. I want to mention that though. Uh, this statistic that these regulations could reduce the valuation of Ant by as much as 140 billion dollars, and the fact that Beijing was willing to throw into question a record-breaking deal at the last minute just reminds us how opaque the system is, and certainly should be a point of concern for a time when they're trying to attract all of these international investors and financial institutions. Yeah, and Jack Ma not afraid to、uh, give his point of view. Selena, great job. You also did manage to get in a bit of shopping there as well. We shall reconvene tomorrow. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only fifteen ninety nine. Save three hundred dollars only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.